Welcome to a special episode of the Public Diplocast, a podcast from CPD and the USC Center on Public Diplomacy. We feature experts who discuss new ideas and enduring challenges in the field of public diplomacy. Today we sit down with Andrew Cooper, professor at the Balsillie School of International Affairs and the Department of Political Science, and director of the Center for the Study on Rapid Global Change at the University of Waterloo, Canada. Andrew is one of the authors behind a special collection of 12 new essays published by the Hague Journal of Diplomacy, focused entirely on public diplomacy, making sense of what's going on now and what may be next. Andrew's chapter addresses the rise of insurgent populism across the world and the implications for public diplomacy. I'm your host, Stacey Ingber, CPD Assistant Director for Programming and Events, and thank you for joining us. Andrew Cooper, thank you so much for joining us. Um, So I'm just going to ask you the first question. You're an expert in global governance, international hierarchy, various forms of diplomacy, and so much more. Tell us how you came to contribute to the special edition of The Hague Journal and why your chapter on populism is timely. I've been fascinated, you know, both as a citizen and as a, a scholar about the rise of populism. And of course, we associate populism with kind of peripheral areas, Latin America, Argentina, kind of rural areas in, in, in North America and indeed uh, Eastern Europe. But of course, what we're finding is that populism is going into the core system, the, the core uh, countries. And of course, as a, a student of, of diplomacy, I was very intrigued by how this connects and disconnects from, from diplomatic practices. This isn't something that diplomats, I think, have had a lot of experience with, uh, certainly core country diplomats. So I, 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 I thought it was something interesting to look at. And of course, the editors, in their, their wisdom, uh, sort of contacted me and, and, and pushed me. I have to say, I went through a couple of, of uh, versions before I think I got it. You know, to try to tell the narrative and the, narr- and the analysis in the way I, I, I wanted to do. It's still an ongoing story, but I think it's a story that needs to, to, be, to be put out. And, and certainly the Hague Journal is a very good journal to, to have that. I'm going to ask you a, a question a little um, associated with this. Um, say I'm your, I'm a friend of uh, 18 years old, and I'm a friend of a niece or a nephew, and I'm consuming images and messages about populism, whether I do it on my phone or on my device or in video or in Twitter. I'm a consuming populism, but I may not know what that means. So. If you're talking to an 18-year-old just entering college, getting ready to embark on their life, how would you define populism so they can understand what they're seeing? Very good question. And I think the real division is that even though some of the people might be similar uh, as, as purport to be populist, as purport to be nationalist, nationalism and populism seem to be quite different in, in certainly who they, they see on their side, who they, they stigmatize. Uh, nationalists tend to stigmatize people outside of the country. It's kind of the other, you know, and I think, you know, most students, even if they're not firmly nationalistic, would be able to get that 
you know, that they're within a sovereign territory, that they see people outside of that sovereign territory differently than them, that those people might have different values. Sometimes they might be adversarial in their, in their intent. But populism sees and, and stigmatizes people within the country as well as without, and, and therefore it's different. They, they tend to stigmatize elites within the system. And, and here, probably, there are subtle differences. I mean, you can have kind of a more left-wing populism that, that fights uh, inequality that could be, in some ways, quite uh, admirable. But at the same time, there's, there's kind of also a, uh, a stigmatization that really wants to break institutions down, that wants to break values, or certainly traditional values, down, and, and really be, be disruptive in a, in a very kind of intense way. And of course, it's particularly intense because the, the people that they are kind of targeting are, again, within proximity. Uh, certainly, they can be different, but it's a different group than, as I say, from that traditional nationalist. Thanks for clarifying that for us. Your f- article focuses on how public diplomacy can adapt to what you call the populist challenge. Before we get into these, can you paint a picture for us of the current global climate with respect to populism? I think it's a different context because public diplomacy, diplomacy generally, and certainly U.S. uh, diplomacy, had a very compelling narrative, this this sense of triumph, the sense of, of, of being in favor of values that could be exported to, to other countries. And, of course, this is very much the, the message post-Cold War, even though for students and for you know, the nieces and nephews, this might be kind of history to them rather than current events. It still sort of sets the scene until fairly recently that, 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 that public diplomacy had a, a target outside the country and that had a set of values democracy, progressive values, liberalism versus illiberalism, non-democratic countries. And I think populism kind of shakes that up uh, to a a real fulsome degree. We can see that certainly the the turn is, as I've said before, inside the country, that there's uh, a sense of disruption that the that the, the values of diplomats even are not seen as, as, as being relevant, or perhaps even at, at, in, in favor of the, the values that people within the, uh, the populist movement see. They want to, to bring elites down, and in many ways, diplomats are part of that elite, just the same as central bankers are, uh, the same way as, as justices, particularly perhaps Supreme uh, Court justices are. So again, it's going to be very disruptive and certainly those old foundations of, of diplomacy and public diplomacy are going to, to go through a lot of stress. And I think that's part of the, uh, the story that we have to understand. We see this globally, those disruptive societal impulses. And you speak to some of these in your chapter, the inside versus the outside. And that leads me to ask a question which you bring up is the neglected domestic mandate. 
And maybe you could talk a little bit about what it is that has moved us in the practice of public diplomacy, that we have not shared those messages and those actions with our domestic audience, and how we could then reclaim that voice, reclaim those messages, and what we could get out of that from that form of public diplomacy practice. A very good question, and a very difficult question. Uh, But I should start with saying that at least Again, in those triumphant years after the the collapse of the Soviet Union, the collapse of of communism, there seemed to be a a, a partnership building up in public diplomacy, that the state apparatus was on side, but there were NGOs, there were corporate uh, voices, and that the message could be somewhat holistic, that, you know, the United States could have a public diplomacy based on kind of entrepreneurism, liberty, freedoms, and then even very specific brands like the United Kingdom, you know, cool Britannia, you know, that people could see, you know, a a kind of what might have been a stodgy country in the past, but there was kind of this different, uh, kind of younger, um, uh, coolish uh, aspect to it. And, And I think that's kind of passe now. I think what is seen as you know, all the skills of diplomats, you know, and being able to mediate, there's a, a sense of what in the, in the technical language is kind of disintermediation. There's a disconnect between the diplomats and their domestic publics. And in some ways, this goes back to wider, you know, structural issues, again, inequality, feeling left behind. But I think it's hard to see those aroused publics uh, being kind of connected with a, a kind of a, a very particular brand of our country. I mean, they want to uh, deal with issues that seem to be, at least from the progressive agenda, kind of very hot button and very controversial, very contested. Uh, questions of, of migration, questions of foreign aid, questions of, you know, uh, you know, even sovereignty itself. And of course, this makes it very difficult for diplomats to respond by the old script. The new script, I think, is to kind of turn public diplomacy inward in some ways. And I call it, you know, this kind of domestic turn that I think um, diplomats have to, to kind of sell a brand, sell a message to their own particular uh, publics. And again, I put the plural because it's not just one group of, of aroused citizens. There's a lot of different. But again, I think we can start moving and, and kind of seeing what a, a kind of a new menu of public diplomacy as uh, you can uh, anticipate, you know, some of this is going to be very messy. It's not going to be that kind of one brand from the past, but I think it's, it's very instrumental that, that these core countries move towards that domestic turn. I'm so glad you brought up messiness because... Um there are always times in 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 public diplomacy practice and in international affairs and foreign policy where things do get messy. Uh, we live with messiness and chaos sometimes in our own personal life and and it's a necessity that we need to have. So it could be a a, a moment with which we can pivot and redirect. So in, in the current times, can you elaborate a little bit more about the messiness that we live in, and how that messiness may bring us into another place of practice of public diplomacy, where we get to achieve some of these future-looking models that you point to in your article? Again, a very good question. Uh, You know, in moments of triumph in the past, life and society 
society didn't seem to be so messy. You know, post uh, Second World War, post uh, Cold War, this again the sense of triumphant uh, kind of order that there was going to be a new order in place outside of the United States, outside of uh, Britain, and so on. But now this messiness uh, kind of reflects that the moment isn't of triumph. Uh, the moment is is one of stress to some extent fatigue in terms of institutions, in terms of uh, practices, you know, that, that again, seem to be stigmatized. So I think what we have to do is, is kind of recognize messiness and sort of have a, a kind of not this one kind of brand of, of public diplomacy, but a, a variety. And again, tap into that messiness and try to turn it around and make it positive. Most Again, nephews, nieces, uncles, aunts are going to come across diplomats or need of, uh, of, of diplomatic services in one way or the other. They might be entrepreneurs, they might be connected to a, a religious uh, group or uh, even a, a diaspora overseas population. Uh, they could be traveling and feel the need for consular service. I think even though all of these are very different from each other, I think the brand could be kind of reconstituted to say that this is a, a public diplomacy, not just of doing things for other people around the world, even though there's still going to be an element of that. But it, it's, a, it's a public diplomacy that delivers for citizens as well, you know, in a, in a variety of different ways, in this kind of messy uh, uh, set of, of circumstances and uh, set of actions. But I think this is going to make it much more appealing to people. And I think here, public diplomats and diplomats generally are going to have to kind of reach out to citizens, not just doing things on the front lines, but, but going into uh, peripheral areas outside of the, the urban metropolitan kind of cosmopolitan areas and, and, and deliver messages about how they can deliver services and how they do deliver services. Again, on commercial basis, on a consular basis, on connecting and networking uh, groups and, and reconnecting families and so on, all sorts of different ways that I think is, is going to be uh, popular and, 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 and redress some of the stigmatization. This is the, the kind of the frontline aspect, but of course, as we can also talk about, there's, there's going to be a, a necessity for individual leaders in countries to kind of recalibrate their message. That is an excellent point. You've talked uh, in our conversation quite a bit on the menu for the future, which is some of the closing uh, pieces in your article. I'd love it if you can touch upon um, one of those pieces right now is the increasing the transactional nature. And I'd love for you to look at transactional public diplomacy at this point, given the rise of populism, nationalism, and some of the challenges that have faced um, multinational and bilateral agreements and how to square those up so that um, countries and messages and publics are aware of the mutual benefit of it. Yeah. I mean, some of this new public diplomacy is going to be very symbolic. It's going to be, again, messaging from the top. It's going to show that public diplomacy has a a message that's appealing, you know, right across the uh, the country. But at the same time, there's a uh, there's a sense and a necessity if you're going to have uh, an instrumental part of public diplomacy that's going to have to be 
but it's also going to be on this transactional level. And if here, I mean, whatever populists want in the world, there's going to be new sets of, of economic uh, arrangements. I mean, we see almost every country now going through a whole set of, of negotiations, whether it's Brexit negotiations in the United Kingdom, whether it's uh, the new NAFTA with, with Canada and Mexico in the United States, whether it's Japan pushing for a new kind of post-TPP, uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, sort of comprehensive and, 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 and to some extent progressive in, 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 in trade. And of course, even from the, the global south, we see a lot of different countries trying to, to build different connections, perhaps with, with countries that they, they didn't have good relationships in the, in, the, in the past. We see sort of South America going through some of this, you know, with Chile pushing for new trading uh, partnerships. So on that, we can see that diplomats are not just this old image of going to cocktail parties and, you know, doing things in a, in a fairly uh, rarefied manner. They're doing things that are very transactional and very delivery-oriented that are going to make a huge difference for people on the ground. Again, this is going to be highly contested about which one or which variety of these negotiations are going to have pros and cons, you know, winners and losers. But all of them, I think, are, are central, not only to the actual delivery of those transactional arrangements, but the messaging, the, 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 the communications about what has been done and why this has been done. And I think this is going to be an important part of public diplomacy and maybe something that has been missed in the past to kind of sell things to show that many of these trade arrangements did have huge positive uh, you know, ramifications as opposed to just having, having losers within society. I want to pivot a little bit to some of the softer points of public diplomacy, and that's the charm offensive. We know that this has been a long-standing tool in the soft power toolkit of many countries um, around the world. And I wanted to hear your thoughts on the media influencers, like an Instagram influencer or a YouTube influencer, where do they fit in the charm offensive of public diplomacy? Pro this and con. It's going to be very diff- you know, difficult, too, because, I mean, some of this is, 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 is catching uh, diplomats off guard because, of course, there's a lot of people out there that, you know, aren't traditional diplomats but have a huge... Uh, influence within society. I mean, you know, we're going through uh, NBA playoffs in Toronto, you know, and we see that was probably the most influential person in the city, and indeed, you know, with his his uh, his, his, his extensive network uh, of social media, is Drake, you know, and and I mean, even though he's been kind of mobilized much more as a as a city or a metropolitan public diplomat. You see that this is going to play out around the world. You're going to have all sorts of different people like this who have some ability, or on the other hand, who can can stop things or can block things because of their intense uh, social media output, but also their ability to mobilize uh, kind of resistors. And of course, this in itself is not totally new, but the, the sort of ramifications and the, the, the speed and the scope, I think. So, of course, the test for even leaders is how they come to terms with this. Do they try to compete? Do they try to, to kind of uh, sort of mobilize these uh, influences themselves? We see some examples of this in the past, you know, on, on some of the, 
the, the, the development issues, you know, with somebody like Bono or somebody, you know, that leaders try to kind of mobilize to, to work with on uh, G8, G20 uh, issues. But again, I think it's going to be much more kind of a loose connection now. And we see kind of, I guess, what you can call kind of progressive um, leaders of, 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 of countries who are threatened by populists or worry about the populist uh, kind of surge in their individual countries are trying to do this. I mean, we certainly see uh, the, the Prime Minister of uh, New Zealand, Ardern, you know, being a very good example of this. We see uh, the President of France, Macron, being a very uh, good example of this. And of course, even, even Justin Trudeau uh, here in Canada, a good example. They come from different backgrounds. They, you know, some are kind of dynasty politics politicians, some or others are kind of meritocracy politicians, but I think they're all searching for ways how they can kind of tap into that, that social media and kind of influential uh, ability, you know, of, of new technology to, to kind of uh, animate and to kind of uh, uh, exploit their, their, their messages. And of course, countries that can't do this are going to be seen as a, as a disadvantage. We, we see some countries, maybe Japan is a good example, that hasn't kind of used, they, they've tried to use much more personal kind of leader to leader, uh, Prime Minister Abe with President Trump, you know, constant meetings. But again, is this more successful than kind of having this more uh, dynamic, much more social media savvy uh, public diplomacy? I think that's probably the future is going to be to be that uh, dynamic and, and to some extent progressive uh, component to public diplomacy. Thank you for sharing your thoughts on that. I'd like to turn this over to you. Is there anything else you'd like to add or bring up uh, that we didn't get a chance to discuss from your chapter in the Hague Journal on Diplomacy? I think the only question was probably that you posed to me that is an interesting one is about kind of elites you know, about political elites and whether there's kind of an outsider-insider <laughs> dynamic to this. And, I mean, here we, we realize that, you know, it's probably objectively most successful politicians are going to come from some sort of elite group. There's, there's, there's occasional exceptions. Uh, uh, Prime Minister Modi from India, who just had this second, you know, huge electoral success. Is, is certainly an exception. But for the most part, it's how the leaders position themselves, whether they position themselves as insiders or outsiders. And subjectively, this is, this is going to play into kind of the populist surge. Because if, even if you have a, somebody who comes from a fairly well-to-do background, an elite background, they can still position themselves as, a, as, a, as an outsider. And this is going to be very influential on their their, their, their public diplomacy, their personalistic public diplomacy. They, they're going to most probably use non-traditional techniques. They're going to try to arouse uh, kind of publics that haven't been terribly involved with diplomacy in the past. And this can be positive in some ways, but of course it can also be negative in the sense that you're going to have a, a, a different culture in terms of, 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 of diplomacy. And again, it comes back to this this counter example that I used before, that there's going to have to be, you know, I guess different forces within society trying to have a different message about what public diplomacy is about and what kind of countries stand for. And even though 
coming back to your point about messiness, there's still going to have to be some sort of pillars that you value, you know, whether it's, it's the justice system, whether it's the, 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 the democratic principles of a country, whether it's, it's just kind of the economic order or the economic system. If you don't have those pillars, it's even going to get more messy, I think, for, for, for countries and for, for, for the, the international uh, community. Thank you for um, sharing your thoughts on that. You're right. I had uh, not had a chance to ask that question. Well, I wanted to keep within my time. I I begged you for 30 minutes, and so I'd like to keep into the 30-minute time frame. I'd like to thank you so much for joining us, for your time, for your thoughts, for sharing them in the Hague Journal and with the public diplomacy community. And we hope to see you soon. Wonderful, Stacey. And and I have to say, I'll put in a a plug for USC and for the Hague Journal. This is a great uh, combination. As most people in the in the in the diplomatic world, certainly the scholarship world, know USC is a is a pivot for this type of work. So so maybe may may it continue. Well, thank you so much, and we do hope that that will be the case. Take care, Andrew, and have a lovely day. Thank you again. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Public Diplocast, produced by CPD, the world's leading research and training center in the field of public diplomacy. The special issue of the Hague Journal of Diplomacy featured today is co-edited by CPD Director Jay Wong and the journal's editor-in-chief, Jan Mellison, of Leiden University and the Klingendale Institute, both in The Hague. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Public Diplomacy, and make sure you find us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Stay tuned for more episodes featuring the best of public diplomacy's forward-looking thinkers. See you next time.